Well, many of you may know that we have been going through the book of First John, and we've had several sessions there, but now we've come to verse 18 of this epistle, John's epistle, and if you would turn with me there, and we will read from verses 18 to 27 this morning, and it reads thusly. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful, Lord, for your goodness towards us, for your truth, God, that you have revealed to us. Oh, Father, as we consider the text before us, grant that we have ears to hear. Lord, grant that I have clarity of mind and expression, that we may all laud and praise the Christ who has bought us with his blood. These things I ask in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as I said before, we've been plodding our way through this epistle, and in the short time we were here, we would have noticed that John is primarily focused on providing us with diagnostic tests of true Christianity. These diagnostic tests or indicatives come to us against the backdrop, though, of rampant apostasy and false teaching. So it's no wonder that John is concerned to ensure that the hearers of his message are assured that they have eternal life. Much of what we covered in our previous section was directed towards this end. We were exposing ourselves to the scrutiny of scripture and looking within us to see, well, do we have what the Bible is saying or pointing towards our indicatives of true Christianity? Do we have it? And we also received much encouragement from those passages. And we will shortly see that this portion of scripture is not much different. The main idea John wants us to see within these few verses is that saving faith is discerned by enduring incorrect belief. Or put more simply, saving faith is enduring faith. To convey this rather simple truth, John makes use of two broad ideas, which we will focus on throughout our time this morning. The first relates to warnings concerning the Antichrist 
who they are, the nature of them. And the second relates to his encouragement to believers in light of this rampant apostasy. So let's look at the first idea that John is highlighting to us. He begins his message by saying, Little children, last hour it is. I know that's not what we have written in our modern Bibles, but that's how the Greek text is literally worded. And it's the Greek text that gives us a sense of the finality and gravity of what is coming. The chilling language makes it difficult for us to avoid that he's speaking about something climactic or apocalyptic even. His words correspond closely to the many references we see in scripture of the last days. And while we won't endeavor to survey the scripture to get a comprehensive picture of what it means to be in the last days, at a basic level, we should see that this reference corresponds to that period of human history between the first and second coming of Christ. We should be mindful, though, that John isn't providing us with a theological tidbit. He's not reminding you why you have AD written on your calendar. That's not the idea. He is bidding us to sense and to see the urgency of living within a time where falsehood is rampant, where deceit and lies are at every corner. That is the thrust of John's first words within this portion of the text. We have had a slow build-up to this point in human history. Just as you would expect in a football game, perhaps if any of you are sports fans, for there to be amicable smiles at the beginning, people helping out those who they've fouled, looking to you know, help out teammates. You would also know that the final moments of the game are coming if one team was down and the persons there were looking to score the last goal because in that final hour, all pleasantries are abandoned. People are looking to wound you. People are looking to go after the ball without concern for their life or their limbs. Why? Because the last hour it is. And so the mystery of iniquity is at work in this world. The prevalence and indeed ruthlessness with which Satan is working to deceive people is staggering. As John says, the Antichrist is coming. So many Antichrists have come. There are approximately 4,300 religions in the world. I don't know whether it has grown since I checked Wikipedia, but probably, probably. But from intercourse with animals, to worship God, to pantheism, Satan has a plethora of religions that people can just choose their pick. There's no shortage of religions. You don't have to go and make yours up. You could just search through a list of them. But the subtle perversion of true religion is really where the real danger lies. It's one thing to make a man believe that he can live as vile as he wants all the days of his life because he wants to. It's quite another for that man to believe that he can live vile and that God endorses his villainy. And it isn't self-evident within the text, but this is precisely the type of evil John is pointing us to. He speaks of men who have put on a cloak of religiosity, who claim to have fellowship with God and walk in the light, as we saw in chapter 1. But yet, 
they deny that Jesus is the Christ. This we see in verse 22. The apostle points us to this lie or insidious evil by the use of the term antichrist. We may not know it in our English rendering of the term, but the term can actually mean two things. It can mean instead of, or it can mean against. So, in the use of the term instead of, any one or anything that is heralded to be Jesus or falsely given any of the titles or excellencies rightly and only belonging to him would be considered antichrist. Brethren, we don't need to get a piece of wood, chip it and form it into something that looks like Jesus in order to be guilty of this. We're quite capable of erecting idols in our heart, erecting saviors in our hearts and worshipping them. Whether it is a man, whether it's relationships, whether it's a job, whether it is the ten deeds that you did that makes you satisfied that you're a Christian. We're quite capable of looking for things to place our hopes and trust in apart from Christ. So we too need to be vigilant and watch our souls against these things. But actually this isn't the meaning that's primarily in view. The meaning that's primarily in view when John says Antichrist is actually against. As many of us are painfully aware, there are many false religions that oppose Christ with the banner of praising him. The word Antichrist is rendered here to mean one who assumes the guise of Christ but opposes him. Jehovah Witnesses, Roman Catholics, Oneness Pentecostals, Prosperity Preachers, and the list goes on. Some of these religions even bear similar characteristics to our faith, but they deny the central tenets just as these antichrists did. But you, have, you may have noticed for this entire time that we've been making reference to antichrist and not to that antichrist. If you recall, John provides us with the idea that the Antichrist is coming. So many Antichrists have come. This Antichrist, or that Antichrist, seems to be a figure of the last hour. One who appears between the coming and return of our Lord Jesus. A prominent figure. John provides us with the evidence that that Antichrist is coming by claiming many Antichrists have come. But the question may remain in our minds, how is this any different from the days of the Old Testament? Surely there were false gods then. There were even persons in Israel who were false prophets. These would have fulfilled both of the senses of the meaning of the word Antichrist. So if before Christ, or before the last days, there were pro proliferation of Antichrist, how does John distinguish between this age and the previous one? In other words, now many antichrists have come, but what of all of the antichrists in the Old Testament? Well, Burkhoff, a writer of uh, systematic theology, provides us with some helpful insight. He says, just as there is in scripture a clearly marked development in the delineation of Christ and the kingdom of God, so there is also a progressive revelation of Antichrist. The representations differ but increase in definiteness, definiteness as God's revelation progresses. 
The world has been in rebellion since the days of Adam. That is for sure. But the coming of Christ has brought a fuller expression and prevalence of what it means to be Antichrist. Before a sacrilegious Israelite may have thought that he was simply neglecting or profaning the temple when he rejected or abhorred God's ordinances. But in this day, it is clear to all, it is more obvious in a sense, that your rebellion is directed towards Jesus. So the Antichrists of this day have disclosed their hand as it were. They, they've laid their chips on the table, betting against the success and mission of Jesus. We should be mindful though, this disbelief of these individuals did not happen upon them suddenly. Look at verse 19. John writes, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. The disbelief is merely symptomatic of something that's going on within the heart. It revealed to the apostles and this community of believers that these individuals never had saving faith to begin with. They had no belief that Jesus was the word become flesh who was sent to die for the sins of men. We have to remember, brothers, these men did not previously profess heresy. That's why they were able to walk among the apostles even. That's why they were able to walk among the community of believers. It is clear that the spirit of Antichrist resonated within them even before it was manifest to all that they were not of us. Just as it is clear that an adulterer does not become an adulterer overnight, but has long flirted, has long toyed with the desire in his heart and that which is sexually immoral, we should also see that the road to heresy, to open heresy, may take a while. It is possible, brothers, to hide among the faithful for years while harboring thoughts and desires which are antichrist. It is, in fact, a sad reality within many local churches that superficial relationships foster this type of phenomenon. We should be wary, brothers, concerned for the sake of our souls, when we seek to remove ourselves from the company of believers, especially when we're confronted with some doctrine. We have to be wary because our beef may not be with the believer. Our beef may be with Christ himself. Obviously, the, clothed, the church is not clothed in pristine faultlessness. We have and have received hard things from people in a wrong manner. It's like, Receiving a $100 bill that's thrown at you. No one wants a $100 bill thrown at them. They want the $100 bill, but the manner in which we've received these things, <laughs> the manner in which we've received these things <laughs> may, may be horrible. In fact, sometimes people may come and confront us telling us the correct thing, but doing it in an incorrect way. They may reference the wrong passage. They may argue incorrectly, and you're like, that makes no sense. And in your decision to hold to what you believe, you may reject them. We get that. We're not perfect. 
But we ought not to give a foothold in our lives by trodden down a path of departing from the truth in any way. There's often much discouragement when we hear of a believer who has fallen away. Many around us throughout our years, whether you are 40, whether you're 30, whether you're older, have witnessed people who we thought were within the faith and have left our company. And this is discouraging. It forces us sometimes to think whether the belief that you even have is genuine. When you see persons who are more passionate than you, when you see persons who are outdoing you, as it were, within the Christian faith, it forces you to think, why am I so convinced that this is the correct way? Will I too fall away? But listen to the interjection that John places in the midst of this tragedy. He says in verse 20, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. He's saying we're convinced of better things of you. He's not convinced that you're antichrist. He's not convinced that you're apostate. He's convinced of better things of you. He's in fact telling us that the departure of these people serves to bolster and further arm the recipients of this letter. As we transition from looking at the warnings concerning the Antichrist and the nature of them, let's consider two means God has granted for us to persevere in orthodox teaching. The first is the gift of truth, and the second is the help of the Holy Spirit. The passage clearly demonstrates that knowing the truth is a gift from God. You have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge, he says. We shouldn't read the passage as conveying that this anointing is an unconnected idea from knowledge. Sometimes we see and in scripture and think, it's like, I have a tomato and a car. Like, those things have nothing to do with each other. But the word and here shouldn't be rendered as such. We should read, rather, that you have an anointing so you all have knowledge, or and so you all have knowledge. It's also helpful to notice that the manner in which John has penned this part of the epistle indicates our passivity in receiving this knowledge. We have not found an anointing, brothers. We did not meditate on a mountain for it. We didn't go to some convention and be blessed by the man of God and receive it. None of those things have occurred. John is indicating using the passive voice that God has granted us something. He's granted us the anointing so that we may all have knowledge. It was his initiative and not ours. It is his truth and it is not ours. But unlike the Antichrist or apostates, who John says are deceivers, liars, and people who are devoid of the truth, you are those who have knowledge. Not just information. That's not what's in view when John uses the word to know our knowledge within this epistle. Surely the Antichrist for some time spoke the same Christian lingo as the rest of the believers within the church. Surely they were saying the same things, doing the same things for quite some time. It was only at a certain point in time that they actually departed because of their disbelief that Jesus was the Christ. If we recap a bit, 
from our previous session and look closely at the use of the term knowledge, we will see that John is, of course, making reference to a special type of relationship that we have with Christ himself. Doctrine directs us to God, but is not equivalent to living relationship with Christ. This is the means by which we are able to enjoy and delight in God himself and who he is for us. But brethren, the reason that we don't depart from the faith is because we don't have a relationship with information. It's not a concept that we can just readily discard. There's a person who has done something on our behalf. There's a Christ who has made a great condescension as our brother preached for us just a week ago. There's a Christ who has made a great condescension for us, who has took upon himself the punishment for our sins on our behalf and has been raised so that he can be our righteousness. There, this is the person who we are enjoined to, not an idea, not some abstract concept, like how an atheist thinks of the idea of God. That's not how we relate to the person and being of God. And we have this gift, this knowledge, this kernel of truth, which has slid a flame our hearts with life through the work of the Spirit. This is implied by what John mentions as the anointing. This is the help the Spirit provides for us and the second piece of encouragement John gives to us. If you have been a Christian long enough in Barbados, you know that the term the anointing is thrown around like confetti. Everyone is anointed for this and that. So it may be helpful to briefly look into what John means by the anointing. But before we do that, it may be to give greater clarity to what the anointing is. Let's look at who it is that provides the anointing. Because often we hear that this person anointed this person or this person did this person and became anointed. Let's look at who gives the anointing. Who is this holy one that John is speaking about? Unfortunately, nowhere else in this book John uses this term, but it does occur once in the Gospel. In chapter 6 and verse 69, Peter, after many disciples left Jesus, confesses and does not deny. He says, you are the Holy One of God. This actually clarifies for us what the anointing is because it is the Holy One that provides us with the anointing as we see in verse 27 of this epistle. This anointing teaches us truth as we later see in this portion. The surrounding evidence therefore strongly implies that the anointing is the Holy Spirit who works to confirm the truth of the message that believers have heard. John Calvin, the renowned theologian of the Holy Spirit, accurately summarizes the interplay between God the Son and the Spirit in this way. He says, Jesus was anointed by the Father, that he might pour forth on us a manifold abundance from his own fullness. It hence flows that men are not rightly made wise by the acumen of their own minds, but by the illumination of the Spirit. And further, 
that we are not otherwise made partakers of the Spirit than through Christ. This is why John is so confident about these believers. They have received from the fullness of Christ. We often don't think about it, but the very knowledge that you have was purchased at Calvary. Christ died that we may know Him. Christ died that you may be able to learn greater and greater things about Him. Christ died that He may issue or He may send forth the Spirit into our lives that we may have greater illumination of His Scripture. That is what Christ has bought with His blood. And this comes to us as an encouragement, especially as we engage the world. We have to say really hard things to people especially pastors and teachers. We often have to preach to people things like the sovereignty of God. You've done nothing but that which God has decreed. Mind blown. We often have to speak to people about things like the nature of slavery, gender roles, carrying your cross, making sacrifices of giving. We often have to bring up really hard things from the scripture and present to Christians present even to the world but we can be encouraged in the case of Christians that there's no need to hold back when confronting a brother or sister we're not going to someone who doesn't want to receive the truth we're not going to someone who hates the truth we're going to someone who has received an anointing who has received understanding from on high that's refreshing for us the most feeble of God's lambs he nourishes with his word the most simple among his people He's able to feed. Ultimately, when we're, con- when we're speaking to Christians, when we're teaching Christians, correcting them, it's not that they have unbridled hatred and rejection of Christ like these antichrists did. These are people who the Spirit has visited and abide with so that they know and understand and perceive the reality of God's Word. As people upon whom the blessing of the Spirit has come, as those who partake in Christ's fullness, John urges us to continue in the truth. He gives us two injunctions which are really the same thing. In verse 24, he says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. But he also says in verse 27, But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Are you abiding in the truth? John is speaking in concentric circles throughout the entire epistle, focusing in on the person and reality of Christ. He begins his letter with a great declaration, a proclamation that the word was made life. He then continues and speaks about God being light and what that means for us, God being holy. And then speaks about how we ought to live, how we ought to conduct ourselves. Are we abiding in this truth are we sitting and contemplating all that Jesus is for us many may think this is a passive language that is being used here because it says let the truth abide in you it uses language like let what you heard from the beginning abide in you but it's quite the opposite though we see in the scripture an injunction not to abandon all that God has said to us in the gospel, John is providing us with an imperative to build upon the foundation that we have been given, to grow up into Christ more and more. 
This is clear by the many references to Christ throughout the entire epistle. He consoles believers even in their sin about what Christ has done as their advocate. He reminds people by negative example that Christ has no part with sin. God has no part of those who want to fellowship with him and sin. Brethren, there is a centrality to the gospel message which we ought to take heed to. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Have you considered what Christ has done? Do you think that you took a baby step by entering in through the gospel, but now you need to grow in leaps and bounds by concentrating on other stuff? Is that how you think of abiding in the truth? There is no fruitfulness or faithfulness where your commitment, remembrance, lauding in, praising in the gospel languishes. We may deceive ourselves thinking that we are making great strides in the Christian life, whether it is abstaining from this sin or the next sin, or bringing ourselves to a particular level of discipline. But how gospel-centered is our ethic? Do our lives revolve around pragmatism? Have we fooled ourselves into thinking because we have managed our affairs well that we are being fruitful? Beware of the Antichrist, he says. Not just explicitly heretical teaching, but endeavor to avoid anything that distracts from the truth and supreme value of Christ. Dear friend, if you have not found that you've held on to Christ in the first place, that you have long neglected him, he refuses none that cleave to him. All who come to Christ in sincere faith, he will hold fast to. Call out to him even now for the forgiveness of your sins, that through faith you may be a partaker of his righteous robes. You may be certain he will keep you, that this same anointing will dwell within you all the days of your life, convincing and compelling you of the goodness and grace of God in preserving you. And let us endeavor to do this, brothers.